You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, a literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. This is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know to understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, excited to announce this one. What are we getting into this week? This week, we're going to be returning to an author that we've uh, discussed on the podcast before. I think this is our first modern author repeat. We're going to be talking about Guzel Yachina's A Volga Tale. Yeah, the folks over at Europa Editions, who just recently published this, actually, as of recording probably two weeks ago, uh, were kind enough to send us both a copy. So it's time to return to fairy tales, dot, 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 but dark and twisted. Uh, dark yes. and twisted as defined by, uh, I guess, the pain of... of that people some people went through during collectivization and then also in notes <laughs> right. jeff the killer face here um <laughs> that's in the script i assume i have to read it yeah you do <laughs> this episode will be covering parts one and two they're titled the wife and the daughter respectively and if you believe the people of Gnadenthal, perhaps one in the same not one in the yes. same that's just a rumor but just a rumor just a rumor but uh okay before we start talking about it obviously we've covered uh you know Guzel Yachina's previous book, uh, Zulaika, on the podcast before uh, that. We also have rerun that. It's been such a favorite of ours. So uh, I'll go ahead and link back to those episodes if you want to go ahead and take a listen to it because it's well worthwhile. Uh, Yachina covers a lot of uh, folk folkloric elements that you don't often see, especially from like smaller groups. Uh, in the case of Zulaika, it was the folklore background of a kind of a of a muslim tartar woman or, or her community as well as how that develops in in the in, when she's being brought to a prison camp uh, in this case we're, we're learning more about folkloric uh, elements in relation to uh the volga volga germans you may not have heard of uh, matt i don't know if you want to talk about quickly let's talk about the volga germans before we get into this i just kind of wanted to give my, my quick note on why we decided to cover this and break it into two parts and all that all that good stuff because uh you know as as part of our, our rebrand and whatnot we're trying to cover more modern literature get out of just 19th and 20th century but kind of bring people up to date on what's coming out now and this is Yahina's uh, second novel and it continues to delve into these sort of interesting aspects that she broaches in her her first novel on on authorship, on national identity, and this one specifically, the role of art in society. And it's it's fun. It's, well, not that fun of a read. Uh, <laughs> the questions are fun. The read is a little depressing, but uh, so, so so be it. It's fun. So it goes. If you are a constant listener of our podcast, it's fun by our standards, which is... You will find this fun. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what is fun is a low bar, I guess you could say. Right, right. Or the bar is just in a different direction. Yes, and and we should. It does bear repeating that her 2015 novel Zuleika, her debut novel, won the Big Book Award, which is the Russian award for literary prose, and she won the Yasnaya Polyana Literary Award. So, uh, her work that deals with uh, the sort of peripheral communities in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union is a really interesting kind of new look into that, mm-hmm. as is the case here, right, with the the Volga Germans. This is a sort of a niche community that I think not a lot of people know about. Right. So this book was originally published in, in 2019 in its original Russian under the title Deti Moi, Our Children, uh, and was uh, translated into English and released uh, just a couple weeks ago by Polly Gannon, obviously, like we said, published by Europa Editions. Okay, let's talk about, let's talk about art. Well, let's talk about schooling, I guess. Yeah. So we start in this a little small town along the Volga River. It's a Volga tale. The Volga is going to have a lot to do with it. Uh, with uh, Jacob or Jacob Ivanovich Bach, uh, he is a 32-year-old school teacher who is in this small German colony of Gnadenthal, um, and he he's just going through life. That's it. He he's teaching uh, classes of 50 to 70 students the whole town. He does the same thing every day. He literally is not even listening as he's giving his lessons. The only really, I guess you could say, interesting thing about him is that he's an inveterate lover of storms, such that when it happens, he will literally go outside and kind of uh, um, uh, lose himself and wake up hours later once the storm has passed, uh, you know, torn, clothes torn, chest beaten, all that. Um, So 
after all this time, you know, he's been here for years and years. Nothing is interesting to him. Nothing exciting except for except for literature. And one day he gets this kind of strange note and uh, uses and, and per the notes instructions, go down goes down to a dock, meets with a Kyrgyz man, and is brought to this farmstead down the, the down the Volga River, uh, in which he meets this guy there, and the guy says, "Look." I'm. Uh, I would like to return to the Reich. Is the Reich is how they return to Germ- uh, refer, uh, refer to Germany? But my daughter. The problem is she's an idiot, and he says it in exactly those harsher terms. She's an idiot, and I will not be able to marry her. I need you to teach her. Not much, obviously. I mean, she's a woman, so you don't. What should she possibly need to learn? But you need to teach her enough that she can talk nicely, I guess, so she can get married. And. Bach is kind of weird about it, but he says, sure. I mean, you know, I got you, you're paying me, so why not? Um, and so Bach returns the next day to find uh, this screen here. And he's kind of initially confused before someone behind the screen speaks to him and says, look, um, you know, I'm Clara. We're going to start the lesson. And he's like, uh, you can be a little bit difficult if you're behind there. So if you could come out uh, and she says, no, um, look, my father says if men see me, then I might become a, a, a vessel of sin. And Bach's like, all right, this is weird. I'm out of here. And he leaves and he tries to leave, but he finds himself lost in the forest on the way down back to the Volga, which would take him back to Gnadenthal um, and is unable to to leave, essentially. He wanders for hours. Um, eventually, he like literally crawls bloodied hands and feet into an apple orchard and finally sees the, the farmstead again, goes inside and begs to be let go. And Clara, who is... Apparently uncertain what he means, just says, hey, look, can we start the lesson? lesson? And uh, so he does, and he decides the next day to return. And over the course of the next, uh, not quite a year, but most of a year, um, they continue these lessons. And he kind of develops this relationship with her uh, where it's it, he is as excited to go teach her as, as he is to like to hear her read when he's teaching as he is to actually teach. They begin to kind of pass notes back and forth in secret. Um, until one day in, I believe it's September, when finally she tells him, we're going to leave tomorrow. And he, he's struck by this great pain upon his return to the village, tries to find a way back to the homestead, uh, but he cannot, and waits under a boat for three days as it rains, um, just kind of wondering what to do next before he returns home and finds there Clara, who is, is waiting for him. And uh, uncertain of what to do next, she says, I guess we're married now. I snuck away from my father when we were moving. Uh, and he tries to take her to a pastor wordlessly and says, all right, we need to get married. And the pastor's like, um, how old is she? And he's like, she's 17, an adult. Uh, and the pastor's like, uh-huh. And you have any documentation for that? And he says, I absolutely do not. And the pastor's like, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go ahead. Can you leave this child here? We're going to need to find her parents. <laughs> And so Bach is decides, no, we're not going to do that. Um, and so he takes her back. And this leads to the whole village exploding in rumors of this strange girl and where she came from. And all these rumors of, is she this? Is she that? Is she really his daughter? So they begin to believe that. And they think, hey, she wants to marry his daughter. All these like lascivious rumors. And uh, people begin refusing to send their kids to school. Uh, the, the townsmen kind of want to like, you know, take them and, and like, uh, bring Clara back by force into the, the pastor's house and, uh, you know, in some way abuse Bach. Um, and that this this very hostile environment leads Bach and Clara to return to the homestead, this now empty homestead where they send the next couple of years um, just kind of living this sort of uh, rural life, descending sort of a silence, um, obviously hurt by this experience. Uh, and uh, Bach becomes very possessive over Clara. And from their perch in this faraway homestead for many years, they watch the town of Gnadenthal, or rather, at least we know Bach does. It's hard to say what Clara does. She's, um, I'm going to say, not, her character is a little distant, I will say gently, in terms of what we understand of Clara from our own perspective. Um, and let's call, let's call it uninvolved or not important to the narrative, really. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, that is perhaps a more direct uh, um, way of saying it. So from the distance, uh, Bach occasionally returns to Gnadenthal. And in these, these various years, he returns like once a year, he finds these strange things where one year he returns and suddenly no one's there. Or the next year he returns and um, all the calves have been slaughtered. And one year planes uh, fill the sky and, and explosions are in the distance 
Um, I think I'm going to have told those out of order. But he begins to term those years various things. Then the year of ransacked houses is the year that he finds it empty. The year of madness is when the plans are ever had. The year of unborn calves is uh, when he finds you know hundreds, if not uh, maybe up to a thousand cows slaughtered, and then they're 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 calves also you know their fetuses um left in piles and and so on and such forth the year of the famished when people begin to like wander through the town so hungry they're literally dying on their feet um and he takes it upon himself to go bury the dead as they wander through the town um and and that just that's how the next couple of years go until uh one day uh, a group of soldiers break into their farmhouse and and through um not that they would know this, but we begin to understand that this is a group of of white guards. We're in the middle of the of the um, civil wars, the very civil wars that happened across um, Eastern Europe in this time between Bolsheviks and the White Guard and, and various other groups. Um, and these these White Guard uh, tie um, uh, tie Bach up and uh, rape, as as we're led to understand, although it's more so by implication, very strong implication, uh, Clara. Um, in the months after this, um, Bach began, begins to understand that Clara has grown pregnant, and in a weird way, she seems more satisfied than she was before. In these years before, she has been mentioned as becoming more adolescent, more boyish, and sort of her thinness. And um, now that she's obviously pregnant, it's kind of elevated her to the status of womanhood. So not to read it into there in terms of um her identity formation or the way that identity formation is given to her i should say but anyway so she this happens this continues um until she gives birth one day and you might understand where this is going uh as she gives birth um well actually you may not understand bach is there for the birth then when she gives birth he drops the baby off on her and says all right well i'm gonna go and wanders off for like the next day and when he comes back, wander around uh, this here forest, <laughs> if you don't mind. Yeah. Along the way, he runs into some people saying, hey, we're part of the German Soviet Republic now. Rejoice. And he's like, that was weird. Um, although he doesn't say that. I guess <laughs> he, he, I should mention that uh, ever since the, the attack, ever since uh, the, the white guard uh, broke into their home and, and bound him and, and raped Clara, uh, he is he is uh, decided to become mute or I guess I don't know if decided is the right word. It's unclear, right? What, what leads him to this decision? But. You know, he, he does not speak anymore for one reason or another. Um, and when he returns from this day of wandering around, he goes back in and is like, well, I guess I'm going to go back and uh, sleep in the barn now. Uh, might as well as go get my copy of Goethe while I go there. Um, don't want to leave that with the baby. And when he goes in, he finds that Clara, in his absence, has bled to death. Um and in the over the course of the next year, he be- so it takes him a while to get there. right. It takes him a good five pages to figure out. Um, yeah. well, it's exaggeration, but a couple. So over the next year, he kind of he initially intends to get rid of this child. Um, and uh, but as as he attempts to leave her, Nadenthal, which now has some sign of life again, uh, finds he's unable to and instead uh, tries to start sneaking in to steal goat's milk uh, to feed her. Which, by the actually, I, sorry, as a side point, I got, I have to, I feel like I should mention, uh, there's a part in Zuleika in which Zuleika feeds her starving child a blood. Uh, I was later told by someone who listened to that episode and reached out to me, um, if you're ever in a survival situation, you should not feed your child blood. That's actually not good for them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, well, there's a there's a reason that people don't do it. <laughs> right. But anyhow, so he ends up stealing milk, and he continues doing that until he is caught. And now we brought before this very strange man who he does not understand, uh, but who we now we understand to be the the chair chairman or chairperson of the Kohols, the collective farm this area has now become, who is from Germany and is here to teach these uh, Volga Germans uh, how to be part of the new Soviet Socialist Republic. Um, and uh, upon finding out that Bach is able to write. He has not written in you know the better part of a decade at this point. He's he's been more of a peasant than a teacher. Um, begins paying him in food and mostly milk for for his uh, daughter. Not that they know that he has a daughter. Um, to write more tales, more history of the town, more anything, and uh, and they this this relationship continues. And this is how Bach keeps the child alive until finally he grows enough attached to her that he decides to name her Anna, or as he calls her Antia. And uh, in this part ends on him writing a fairy tale as as Hoffman Hoffman is the is the um, supervisor of the chairman of this Kohols, uh, a um, 
a fairy tale, which he specifically requests because he wants writings for children to kind of raise consciousness. As we meet the people here, we begin to understand that uh, they're part of this German socialist republic, but they're not, I, I mean, you know, they're not, I, I feel like this is a little vulgar to say, but they're, they're peasants. They're, 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 their political considerations prior to this point had really just been, you know, what's going on in their own town, the larger building of, uh, of a socialist, you know, country is kind of beyond them. I mean, the idea of a country is already a new one for them, the fact that they're a republic, um, would probably surprise many of them. And um, so he, the Hoffman wants a fairy tale, and Bach goes and writes one, and he takes uh, the life of Katya, Katya, excuse me, he takes the life of Clara and writes it into sort of this, um, we, we, we would understand to be a Rapunzel tale, um, but with the instead of a knight coming to save Rapunzel, she... Uh, gets out of this big tower, wanders the year for seven lands, and becomes a relatively successful, um, I think, run- runner of an orchard, and finally meets the, her knight in training armor, who is, in fact, a school teacher. Um, and I, th- I think that's what all the girls and women dream about, right? Is being saved by a school teacher in shining armor. Right. Well, being be running an apple orchard and then finding your knight in training armor who's a school teacher in like a city town like five years later and then your evil father finding you both and being like, daughter, and then dying on the spot. It's really, I mean, a very common I mean, fantasy I've heard. Okay. All, all things aside, I, I, I do, the older I get, the idea of just running an apple orchard sounds kind of nice <laughs> no, I, no i mean i'm i'm not here to criticize this tale i think i think this is a far superior version to the classic rapunzel of the night comes up <laughs> now she gets out wanders the land for seven years and then becomes an apple farmer that is the the mm-hmm. better version of this and not just an apple it's farmer a legendary one right right and so um after that we kind of we, we end the part on Antia growing up more and as she approaches a year um box increasing fear for her and this sort of possessiveness which had also overtaken him in regards to clara also for his daughter but more in a fearful um i can't lose you kind of way but like in in a way that i'm sure any parent is familiar with of oh god please don't fall down the stairs or please don't poke yourself with that and it's really hard to childproof a house when you're in a you know uh early 20th century peasant home (laughs) yeah i mean he's leaving this kid for like entire days (laughs) right coming back to only defeat it at night which seems i don't know right yeah not not ideal for for perhaps how you raise you, a child you get but... why many of them didn't make it to adulthood <laughs> you know <laughs> right yeah and uh, oh i guess i should say as as a side point maybe this is this is where this part ends um up to this point he's kind of avoided the the um question of parentage that's something that he in his own mind has has thoroughly avoided uh um trying to address who, who because up to this point uh of the point of the white guard finding uh this homestead he and and clara have been trying to conceive but unsuccessfully um and he for the most part ansia resembles clara and one day as she's approaching a year re- realizes that she does not resemble clara anymore and begins to deal with these questions of oh maybe she's beginning to resemble her father uh, which kind of dominates his mind until one day he decides he's, he hasn't he literally hasn't looked in his face in almost a decade. He's got no mirrors. He just has kind of brave glimpses in water. So he decides to cut his beard and shave since he's sort of reintegrating society. And as he stares into the water, as he's shaving uh, with the kitchen knife, he begins to realize that Antia, in fact, resembles him. That's where this part ends. And the most surprising is that he didn't kill himself shaving with a kitchen knife. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So anywhere, is there anywhere you want to start here? Uh, I think I would like to start by just taking a quick break. Mm. We'll be back in just a second. Absolutely. And our episode here uh, is brought to you by, well, I guess we have to give this one to Europa Editions a little bit. No, we don't. <laughs> no, we don't. For sending us. They're not sponsoring they're, us. I guess they're not sponsoring. They just sent us <laughs> a book. So thank, thank you again for sending us a book. It's very nice of you. But the rest is, is actually brought to you in terms of people giving us money by our listeners. Uh, you can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slavaclitpod.com. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all the secondary sources mentioned. If you want to support the show but don't want to spend any of your hard-earned currency that you earn from writing fairy tales, you can join our email list for free at slaviclitpod.com, or you can leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, if you'd like to want to bogard those cups or glasses of milk you're getting, 
Um, mm-hmm. If you have any mm-hmm. questions, comments, or want to appear in our Office Hours podcast, perhaps to ask us about the, uh, I don't know, fairy tale to milk conversion rate, drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209-800-3944, or you can also email us a voice recording or text question at our at uh, slaviclitpod at gmail.com. We'll bring the, your question onto the podcast and do our best to address it. All right, let's get back to building socialism. <laughs> so, yeah, this is this is interesting. It's also, I should say, um, uh, bigger in scope than Zulaika in a sense that mm-hmm. uh, we are not only following the life of Bach, but we, we briefly um, go to to our, our, our good, dear personal friend, uh, V.I. Lenin, as he's dying, and also... Um, uh, I'm required to say this, or the Stasi will come after me. Our other good, dear friend, uh, dear personal friend, Yosef Stalin, um, Vasaryevich Stalin, as he is watching. Don't make me do this part. <laughs> as he's uh, watching um, Lenin die, and this is uh, where um, Yakhina uh, begins to have more of a, a broader kind of political perspective on um, on things, which I want to come back to. Um, we can start there. We can start. Okay, let's start there. Let's start with um, so. I, I think this is essentially trying to address the same question. And let me know if you uh, see this differently, where um, th- on some level, when, when Lenin is dying, or this is, they're only referred to by the names of the leader and the guest. The, the leader I already is, hate that. Yeah, the leader is the one dying. The guest is the one watching. I already don't like that. Already. <laughs> what, what, yeah, but the, the titles are how so? The titles, yeah. We, we talked about this, like it's a dystopian trope, you know, that, that people do. Right, for no seemingly no reason when they when they want to make something sound like scary or weird or big and all encompassing, they'll just take like the common noun and capitalize it. Like when she refers to communism as the idea, right? What is that? That's not. That's not. That's not insightful. Yeah, I um, I think when I was reading, I got a little bit more sort of like um, I don't know if you've ever read Europe Central by um, William T. Volman. That was kind of a little bit more of getting what I was getting, but I, I see where you're coming from. And I think sort of for the purposes of, I don't want to say obfuscation, but in, in coming to this broader point of view, she is not only talking about this broad perspective, the idea, which in this case means communism, uh, but she's also not talking about individuals, even though she is so that you get depersonalized. No one is given a name. They're just the nurse, uh, the leader, the guest and so on. But uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do think that 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 technique you talked about is a little over relied on. Uh, I'm gonna be just, I'm gonna be just straight up brutal. I think this chapter should have been cut. I, I don't think this is where her writing shines. I think there's a lot of strong moments in the book, but this is not one. I, I don't also, I just don't see it as necessary to the overall project. Is my thing. Uh, maybe my understanding of her artistic project is incorrect, but uh, this was not my favorite part. <laughs> right. What what I was kind of tracking from it is that this is sort of the how do I say it? I think I agree with you on the whole. It's it's trying to kind of justify uh, without necessarily addressing. So in the early Soviet Union, uh, this attempt to bring um, socialism to each individual, uh, I guess, area, these different ethnic groups. In, la- in later years, you kind of have this sort of Russification of it where it becomes dominated, especially by the late Soviet Union. It becomes dominated by a sort of Russian identity. Um, that's why, you know, you see all these nations or post-Soviet countries now uh, often like having to reintroduce a lot of their native languages into schooling um, because for many, many years it was schooling, professional life was in Russian and in many places too. Um, it was even forbidden to engage in these these um, traditional languages. But in the very early years of the Soviet Union, uh, that was not the case. The, there was an attempt to sort of bring um, sort of communism to these countries on their own grounds and i hesitate to use that term exactly because it's still on soviet terms of course uh but it was it, so this is an idea called kornizatsia or like i guess like hardification but it, it took national identity integrated that into um into the bringing of socialism to these these uh, areas if you look up art of the time you'll see of course like all these really interesting you know soviet propaganda posters but drawn in, in national art styles but in this case, this chapter is really kind of justifying in a way that I don't necessarily need it to happen. Um, Lenin's specific interest in the German and the Volka people and the place they play between uh, and the negotiations between the new Soviet Union and, and the, the German Reich of the kind of uh, determinacy of these Volka people, who, of course, are, are not part of either nation, really, uh, in terms of their actual identity. Um, 
And it's sort of justifying like, okay, well, they're going to be self-determined, but we're going to send our people there to kind of make them a republic, um, make them a Soviet republic to bring up their class consciousness. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of justifying why you go from one part to the next, but I, I think you're essentially correct that. Yeah, but you, I feel like you get the justification in the story itself. Yeah. Which is why, to me, it seems superfluous a little. Yeah, no, I, tra- I track where you're coming from. I track where you're coming from. Thankfully, I mean, this is a pretty short chapter. Yeah. I think it's a little also a little heavy handed in the way that the leader Lenin is it literally is, lying in the light and the guest you know, is always like if, standing in dark. I mean, the, the staff turn off the lights when the guest comes because it's, you know, the guest prefers the darkness, which is. <laughs> I, see, I don't know if this is supposed to continue on and sort of use that same sort of almost fairy tale logic in explaining like large scale political, you know, systems. But I just think it doesn't quite it just doesn't quite fit the the tone, the. I don't know. It just, this part didn't do it for me. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Fortunately, it was like six pages and I forgot about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say, I think from Zuleika to this book, you notice an obvious evolution in Yakina's style, uh, which I think we, you know, have some uneven opinions on that evolution, but I, I would say I think it's positive in the whole that obviously Yakina is trying new things. And I think on the whole, that's a positive, you know, positive step forward. And that this does feel very distinct from. Uh, Zuleika, even though it does address kind of a lot of the a lot of say of the of similar themes. Well, I don't know how distinct I really think it. Fe- there, there is. I mean, it definitely feels like Yakina. It feels some parts of the narrative are to me they were so suspiciously close to what was happening in Zuleika mm. that I was like, I think I have read this before. Right. Right. Particularly with the the whites breaking in that that whole kind of sequence was just so very similar to me. Right. I think the questions that are being asked are broader, uh, a little more interesting here. But I, I don't know. I, I'm going to withhold my, my kind of judgment on it until I finish the book. Sure, yeah. Um, but yeah, halfway through, I do have some reservations, I will say, if you can't tell. <laughs> I I um I think I disagree slightly, not in the sense that I didn't, I wasn't thinking of other books. When I when I was reading Do this, it. Disagree I was, fully, you coward. <laughs> well, no, I mean I, I was reading this and I, I saw the connections to Zuleika. I was not reminded very strongly, but maybe that's because I was reminded more strongly of other books. When I was reading this, I was like overwhelmingly reminded of, of Yevgeny Vodolaskin's Loris was uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm not saying that this was like lifted from that, but just a, a story of a of a fairy tale of a of a man who is overly possessive of a woman with a K name who then dies in childbirth and then he, <laughs> he then he, he then he becomes mute and then for the rest of his life as penance for her death and and speaking to her from beyond the grave, even though she never speaks back as he wanders for in penances. Um, you know, obviously the actual text diverges, but I mean the baseline there is a little similar. But also I think that's like a very basic I don't know, kind of fairy tale idea, although a little specific to choose to no longer speak after your wife dies in child's birth. You also feel remorse over how possessive you were over her and, and so on and such forth. But <laughs> well, I don't think he, he doesn't stop speaking after she dies. He stops speaking after the rape. Yeah. Right? Yes, this is true. Which is just a yeah. I mean, I don't know. Trauma response. Yeah. Traumatic event leads to yeah that, but um but it's like it's different though completely than that it's not just some like sort of post-death yearning that he goes on for the whole book right it's more about how he reintegrates her into his writing and the the process of creation yes i think that well that's where it is diverges whereas where loris um is co- is con- is concerned with a character who's now dead uh, as if they could speak back this uh, very quickly does turn into a reinterpretation of that character, which I, I guess I almost wonder if you couldn't call it a reinterpretation because Clara has so little character in the first place. I mean, obviously, this is from Bach's perspective for the most part. So the fact that we don't get much of her maybe isn't that surprising. But I guess it's worth noting that even Bach does seems to not fully understand her after her disappointment of her experience in Kandadenthal. He himself is even distant from her. So it's her her internal life is entirely distant from us other than the apparent desire for childbirth. So that reinterpretation of her is maybe less of a reinterpretation than our first introduction to Clara uh, in parentheses box version. I mean, I think they, I think he does have an understanding of her. I think it's met though with the understanding that he can't essentially give her anything different than her father did. Right. Yeah. Which is to also keep her captive in, you know, yeah, this homestead. Which is an irony he's painfully aware of and yet is unable to break right. out of. Until, I guess you could say, perhaps, when he begins to reinterpret her life through the lens of fairy tale later on. Right. Where she be, he is, 
aware of her being trapped on this farm and tries to give her a life where instead of being trapped, she's able to escape and live this life and, you know, become this this apple farmer. Which is, apples are an interesting, interesting, I don't know, note of salvation. You get away from the apple as sin and more as apple as um, the apple orchard is where he's saved from this initial weird shifting world. It's what brings this fairy tale Clara, her fortune and fame yeah there's this this line that says could he not change this plot and liberate clara from her captivity could this be a form of tribute to his beloved could he not in this way atone for even a small part of his guilt Hmm. uh and this is just this is this is actually my favorite part of the book this is the most interesting question to me this is the best development i think of yakina's like i call it her artistic project right because the book starts with the dedication to my grandfather a village schoolmaster of german right and so this is in a sense, you're, you're reading this sort of like meta-narrative of Yakina, right, revitalizing the image of her grandfather, who in, in the story is, is doing the same kind of thing. So there's like the sort of layers of it uh, when, when it comes to creation, which I think is interesting. Yeah. That was my favorite like idea, I guess, from this book so far. Right. No, yeah, I agree. And I think it's especially interesting in, uh, especially in relation to Zuleika, of this sort of building of a society because we, we have these both the same ideas of Simruk and, and Zuleika is this building of this community um, out in the you know far far in somewhere in Siberia but in this case we have an existing community Gnadenthal who after the the creation of the Kohols here these people are obviously not adapting as 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 evidenced by Hoffman's um, frustration and now uh, as uh, if I can steal one of your notes here, um, when Bach begins writing again, he's imagining these this sort of different, thereby, quote, raising the once beautiful Kadanthal from the ruins, at least on paper. Bach wasn't writing, he was building. Mm-hmm. And that he he's now, although without without any sort of socialist consciousness himself, is now trying to, is rebuilding this this new world, which I, I again, I, I mean, this ties to Zuleika and that these building these communities comes again, not from like bigger capital I idea here, this idea of uh, Volcatel to be building communities through mutual, I guess, culture and whatever that might be, even if it's not ancient, especially if it's not ancient, the way that Zuleika and Volcatels are, are very modern in their own ways. Well, I thought Zuleika was more focused on the actual physical process of building yeah. and, and the importance of that, whereas here... You, you get someone who's not really that good at anything except <laughs> seemingly writing. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there is that line from that chapter seven, the the political systems chapter that I don't particularly care for, <laughs> where Yukina says that ideas move history, mm. which is um, not not necessarily a new idea, I wouldn't say. But that's kind of what the what the the gist of Box, I, I think, development is right he's unknowingly creating or contributing to an an idea moving history right right even if he doesn't know that he's doing it and so it's an interesting look at how art can be kind of picked up by ideology employed by ideology it's an interesting look at how you know the the revision process for Hoffman kind of you know is crossing out these these reactionary lines as he calls them that he doesn't like and Bach says well that could have been done uh, by any of the the schoolboys that I put up front in the donkey row, the idiots essentially, uh, it could it could have been doing this revision, but the process of writing for him is so almost like therapeutic, right? So inspirational that he does it anyways, and that's powerful, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, I agree. I think um, in the way that Bach kind of creates history, in in terms of how he names years, that was something that I thought was very interesting, and it was just kind of a, a curiosity of. You know, it's not 1918. It's the the year of ransacked houses. It's not 1919. It's it's the year of madness. It's the year of planes and destruction. It's not 1920. It's the year of unborn calves. The year that you know all the slaughter of of these cattle takes place. And that wasn't something I thought too much of until later on when he's you are reading these various excerpts that he's writing in this these last couple of chapters of of the daughter and he writes in one part reflecting on the months and there's sort of these very in sudden. In more city German, city Russian, you've got these kind of very formal January, February, March, April, and so on. But in in you know more rural areas, it's uh, the names of the the months relate to what happens that month. This is the harvest month. This is the wine month. This is Christ's month. Christmas, right? And he t- he takes that same 
process into himself in creating this history of what is this year. It's not simply the year itself. It is the year is what happened that year and thereby creating narratives of history through his perception here. And I don't think there's too much to add there. Just he he becomes this this central focus from our perspective of creating the story of history too, not of fairy tales becoming how you mm-hmm. understand this society or this time or this era or this place. Yeah. I've just add to like I totally misread where this book was going initially. This I thought the whole thing was going to be a fairy tale. Yeah, because <laughs> where did you point, think it was going? Uh, when Bach initially goes to the homestead to start teaching, and he's so f- freaked out by the whole situation, and he goes to run away, but he can't find the path to the Volga. I thought this was like um, like fairy tale logic. Like I thought that it, it was there, but he could only access it once he had taught right i I thought it was just like is inescapable sort of magic Mm. little land you know headed by the grim father right that is his his name here so that's really it wasn't a subtle nod right so i thought that that's what was going to be the sort of gist of the story but it's it's sort it sort of is in this first part and and then i think like you're kind of saying here the the second part gives you a a more clear insight into where it's going which is the transformation of fairy tale right that's essentially what Bach is participating in on the literal level of, of his writing and that's also kind of what Hina is doing in the in the book as a whole is taking what is, is sort of this uh kind of fairy tale like story and seeing what happens when it gets um you know shredded and pushed and mangled and rearranged in the soviet union right what happens when you collectivize the fairy tale yeah exactly and and that's kind of you know that's an interesting question that's where that's where i think her, her writing is the strongest yeah no i completely agree i mean the, the first even beyond just this sort of escape scene or attempted escape scene when he first approaches this house the whole place like you say operates on dream logic he feels completely alone he's calling out no one's there he walks in and and clara's father like you say named uda grim we might be tracking some some interesting naming conventions here uh uda grim is like at this sort of fairy tale i mean every moment he's just shoveling food into his mouth and we're not just talking he has got a dish he's got an entire feast all for himself he's got liquor he's got all these strange things and he's just shoveling it in like this kind of towering man as he you know dictates to Bach what what's going to happen but as Bach leaves he feels better about it and when he steps outside he begins to realize that I, oh this is not a lonely farmstead and in fact this is pretty teeming with life right there's a, like a group of many Kyrgyz men who are farmhands here a woman a seamstress a well, kind of an old older you know uh, hand around the house it's actually quite full of life and he literally the darkness falls away and makes it a much brighter lighter time and his feelings about this farmstead dictate it and as we go uh of this you know by the time you're in the daughter that's very much not the case it's the the farmstead is not reactive the world is not reactive to his feelings it simply is and he's kind of the master of it in a sense i mean he's he fishes he he mends he fixes he he just works on it that's that's sort of his land in a way at that point and like you say i mean that fairy tale is, is falling away and now is kind of coming under his control especially once the the land itself is becoming collectivized and the land is not re- reactive to the the whims and individual feelings of people but is in fact subject to the laws of history of of the idea capital i you know the only thing that i didn't quite get on on his storyline mm. Maybe you got it, which is, where did he go? They, they said they were leaving for Germany. It was quite sudden. And I was wondering, was this he's returning home because of the revolution and never coming back? Or what was the deal? Because when they when Clara and Bach go back to the house this whole time, I was thinking, oh, her dad's going to show back up and kill him. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't think too much. I guess I just kind of took him at his word that he wanted to go back to. I mean, there's like a later a later fairy tale where Bach writes about sort of the, the lives and identities of the Volga Germans where, you know, it, in, in the people in the you know, they were promised at one point, come to Russia, these infinite lands, uh, this invitation of Catherine the Great that uh, you can restart life here. And for many people who life was hard, they accepted and they came to the Volga. Then there's the second wave where people say, go to America. It's great over there. I mean, it's the land of this, everything you want. And they go and they come back and said, no, that wasn't really all it came up to be. And then finally comes the last part, which is for these, these people who did go and did not come back, in this case, these Volga Germans, they begin to imagine the Reich as this place where everything is exactly as it should be, which uh, kind of hides the fact that the Reich is not what it was, and it's not what they think it is, and they, in fact, are something entirely different at this point. And I I think kind of uh, Grimm falls into that last category for whom everything that's wrong with his life, uh, whatever it is, he, he seems unsatisfied. 
even though his, his homestead seems great with this life. And so he's returning to the Reich, to this imagined community of, of that's going to be better. Maybe it is better for him. Who knows? I mean, he seems like uh, he's got some things going for him. But I just kind of saw him as, as uh, in the story as just that dedicated bunch who just feels like life could be better somewhere else. And, and maybe they're able to make it such. I don't know. Maybe I think you're you reading a little bit more into it might might maybe a more correct way of looking into it i think i just kind of took it unthinkingly on his word this guy's got one kid and he didn't even try to go look for her (laughs) well he seems pretty strict i if if anyone was like yeah i'm gonna disown my kid if they you know leave him behind yeah that's that's true that's true i guess that's possible or he just he seems Mm. uh rather taciturn and i mean yeah <laughs> and, and that it, it, the, every moment where Bach kind of feels this need to tear down the street and is like who is Clara uh feels like nah he'd probably kill me and I believe him I believe Bach in that moment yeah I do, I do too <laughs> now there, there there's a couple scenes here that I thought were so, sort of reminiscent of novels that were written around this mm. time in the time in which the action takes place so it's interesting to kind of see the a modern take on some of this right and one of the really big ones that is really hot in the 20s right is this question of motherhood Mm. and specifically i'm always thinking of gladkov's cement because i just think it's a better book than people give it credit for personally (laughs) i'm i'm pro cement i'm gonna say it i'm gonna lay that down here and I think those are, I think those are the two big diktats of our podcast. One is that yep. Tolstoy or Grossman is not the Soviet Tolstoy. Uh, Tolstoy is the imperial Grossman, and then right. diktat number two, Cement is a better book than people think it is. Yeah, the um, original edition. I guess we should amend. <laughs> yeah, the original edition. Yeah. Um, so in Cement, there there's the scene where uh, character is kind of just looking out at at the water, and there's just a dead baby floating, and it's pretty harrowing and there is a a lot of a a lot of this kind of i thought brought to the fore of of olga tale Uh, particularly this scene when bach goes back to the other side of the volga and i can't remember what town even you know he's in but he sees right this this scene of the 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 remnants of a massive cow slaughter and he he sees these sort of unborn calves that they didn't know what to do with. They just found them in the wombs of the of the mother cows, and then didn't know what to do with them, so they just tossed them in a pile, basically, and they're just sitting there. I mean, dead, but you know, piled up. And it's also it it's a pretty I would say as far as this book goes, it's a pretty harrowing scene just because of the fact that there's not really a lot of violence shown or really depicted a lot of it is implied or like this right you see it kind of after the fact which is kind of um interesting and so this is i i I read it as sort of um well it's not a continuation of cement by any means but it's it's posing the similar question on you know the role of motherhood in new society and the sort of destructive nature of of war right and how that can disrupt that sort of continuity that they're looking for and this is sort of mirrored later and i I don't know if we mentioned this during the summer during the summary but clara is stored in the sort of ice box uh because it's you know i one because bach can't let go but two because it's winter and i don't think you can bury someone in the winter Mm. uh particularly when the ground's frozen uh so she's (laughs) being stored there while bach sits with her uh most of the day Mm -hmm. uh and there's uh, a line where the narrator mentions how you know she's being stored where the the slaughtered fowl and dead fish were also stored and so i i don't know just the sort of you know the this sort of dead mother imagery the sort of i don't know just discontinuity that erupts as a result of the war is is sort of this this interesting question that's also being explored here mm, right and i mean that that pile of unborn calves it is truly in the ways that war is not really described if we want to tie this line to it, it truly reflects in the grotesqueries of war it, it is i mean he's staring at the calf pile and he's trying to figure out and he's describing what you're kind of seeing and unable to get them apart to bury them or do whatever anything other than leaving there and it really is if you're squeamish it's a little tough of a read i mean it's very which i think 
as in its own way of of reflecting the history of the region in terms of block box experiences it does a good job in reflecting to you the horror of these times of of this time of of civil war and uh of of sort of an imposed famine right but at the same time uh, despite all of the horrors of war and everything there's still a relatively positive depiction of the communists so far i think hmm I see. I don't. Yeah. I, I wasn't. I wasn't one hundred percent clear that the people coming into their house were white army. It, well, it's because they say they're being chased. I guess that you're right. It does not clear. They say they're being chased by the Reds. So I, I took that to be. Oh, they do say they're chased by the Reds. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, they, I guess they could. They could theoretically. There are other groups involved in the Civil War. They could be Greens. But, I mean. Yeah. No, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> they could be the Greens. I, I just or yeah, any number of other colors that were that were present during the Civil War. But I just wanted to double check to make sure that I wasn't going out on too far of a limb here and the the sort of positive i I guess i would consider it a positive description of uh hoffman for sure right i mean he's a physically he's not described as a he's got a very strange physical appearance uh according to bach which is he thinks he's a woman for like two pages before realizing he's just a small man and despite this kind of odd physical appearance that he's he's given in the story he's kind of you know he doesn't doesn't punish bach for stealing the milk he's more just intrigued as to who would just steal like wh- a couple cups of milk he's like just take the take the goat just take <laughs> right. it just steal the goat like why are you you know coming in and just stealing like a little bit you know and the uh y- you know other resident the other the other peasant that's there is saying no you, we should just beat him and hoffman says no you don't you don't do like would you beat your own child and well, he says he says this to Bach, who who we don't think would. But if hey, if he had asked the peasant, "Would you beat your own child?" Of course, we know the peasant would probably say yes, <laughs> right? Um, and he goes on this sort of you know rant about reforming people and you know improving them and and whatnot. And I think he's described relatively in, in a positive manner, which we'll we'll see how long that lasts for. Yeah, I mean, I think this book kind of engages, and there's this sort of I don't want to call it a classic, but a very common interpretation of Soviet history for some people is that there is a true and honest sort of Soviet Union under, you know, V.I. Lenin, and then it suddenly took a turn under Stalin. And there's other interpretations of the Stalin, of whether that's an outcropping of Lenin, these institutions that Lenin is uh, instituted during his own time, the NEP, you know, the, the, the Cheka. I'm not here to litigate your view of history, but I do think that there's an unsubtle eye towards the Soviet Union under Lenin being kind of like this possible future and, you know, I mean, literally Stalin standing in darkness waiting on the, uh, as the book mentions, he's just waiting, the nurse thinks he's there to watch Lenin die. So the sort of darkness of Stalin literally waiting at the door still waiting for Lenin, the light to die. I think it's a little bit of an unsubtle, unsubtle view of history in terms of what it is here. Yeah, I just think that so the, part of the reason that I, I don't think this whole chapter is like 100% necessary, at, at least at the moment, like I said, maybe it'll really tie in by the end. Who knows? I, I just feel like the it so doesn't matter because what's being explored is sort of the the individual, right? Hmm. Um, it's sort of how these individual peasants kind of interface with Hoffman and these sort of new ideas. And, and so I, I don't know that I needed the grandiose scoping out of, of the uh, i didn't i didn't need a, a larger overview i just i wanted more exploration of that and um, that's what i found interesting because these larger figures i don't really think at the moment have an effect on a lot of these people right it's it's more on the the individuals that are actually working in these like far kind of removed areas right they're not centrally located even hoffman is amazed at the fact that people are yeah so out of touch that they literally look like renaissance paintings because they're so old and grizzled and he's never seen any any group of people that looks like them right Right. and i think it's well it's easy to trick them too one of their common phrases they they're obviously these are all german-speaking people i mean one thing that's interesting to note is an interesting differentiation is that they speak a volga german which is very different from this reichs german that the reichsdeutsch that Hoffman speaks, he speaks like a different form of speech from the rest of them. And they, they use this one phrase like, oh, by, you know, Cologne's Cathedral. And he says, like, why do you always say that? Just say Moscow, just like by Moscow's Towers. And they're like, well, we've never <laughs> seen Moscow's Towers. And then he says, well, you've never seen Cologne's Cathedral. 
real either. What if I told you they would burn down a hundred <laughs> years ago? And they have nothing to say to that because they honestly have no idea if that's the truth or not. I, I thought I thought the the interaction between Hoffman and some of the, the other people's was pretty funny. Maybe he'll be evil in the next part. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Or if if my my prediction, if I if I was a betting man, which I am, uh, is that uh, he's gonna he's gonna himself be uh, arrested or shot in favor of a new. Oh yeah, he's being he's being yeah. purged in the thirties. No, he's doubt. getting purged and he's gonna be replaced by a new sort of a less friendly <laughs> commissar or uh, local chief of something or other but who in turn is going to persecute bach that's my that's my concluding yeah. guess on how this goes <laughs> let's see right um if we, if we just go ahead and, and uh, guess out the rest of the story from here yeah um i do think i as a i don't know there's too much more you want to get to i don't have too much more i, I just want to say i love the interactions with the the people this town i would say was really bought, brought to life uh, Yakina does such a wonderful job of uh, all these characters of watermelon. I think it's watermelon Emmy or uh, mustache bowl or no mustache bowl, no mustache bowl being the good one, mustache bowl being the scary one. Uh, all these <laughs> just it's a wonderfully sketched out scene in Gnadenthal uh, of this these this life, which I don't think there's too much to analyze there. Just it's a wonderfully um, wonderfully brought together and in, in, in described world. Yeah, I, I I like it. I I'd still more. I, kind of interested in more exploration of the, the pre-soviet but I, I understand that's not where the conflict comes from right yeah <laughs> but we'll we'll kind of see we'll see we'll come back to it we'll, we'll, we'll think about it a little bit more yeah we will we'll be here thinking <laughs> just as we always are well mm-hmm. this has been good matt but i think it's time to perhaps wrap up because we got to get on with things uh but before we go i do have to ask what are we covering next week next week we are going to be doing a part three of our master and margarita series which is going to be book two chapters 19 through 25 uh it's it's gonna be good as it always is we're gonna be riding around moscow on our brooms <laughs> attending witches balls or i guess devil's balls and uh just such a wonderful time it make sure to get your best fineries um well it's got it's actually pretty specific you got to have a tux or you got to be naked one mm-hmm. or the other mm-hmm. uh sorry i don't make the rules the devil does the devil does devil's in the details <laughs> if you're uh planning on reading along with us be sure to pick up a copy through our affiliate links on our website uh and you know while you're there on our website if you want to help keep our show independent and also gain all these cool exclusive perks including notes containing all the research that went into this episode and all of our episodes head on over to our website slaviclitpod.com before we let you go we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters our current supporters from our new website are pack rob arini yitza caitlin isaac and janice gary lou daniel my jeff ben and eric the music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Peremotka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. The links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon. 